Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club Podcast, where every month we deep dive into a different aspect of cinema. Directors, actors, franchises, or genres, it doesn't matter. It's always fun at the Film Club. I'm Dean. I'm Boo. And this month, we're how? This month, I got it. I'm, I'm getting through it. This uh-huh. month, we're talking about... A uh, new theme. A new theme, yes. Movies about movies. And this week, we're talking about... The Fablemans. That's right. This is your month. Uh, you it picked is. everything. Yes, so this take is my it. month. Um, we've never done movies about movies. We've done those kind of movies before, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I um, Hitchcock is another one. Hitchcock, yeah. So it's like I love filmmaking and the behind the scenes of it, and to have movies that are all about that. You know, that is my bread and butter right there. So yeah, this entire month is curated by me. These are boo picks, and we're starting off with a brand new movie that both of us have never seen before. Yeah, this is um the Fablemans. It's Steven Spielberg's like swan song movie, even though it's not his swan song. It, no, because he's still feels, going. Yeah, he's still going, but it feels like it, right? Yeah, this feels like you know this would be the uh, the last curtain call. You know, it's like I've done all of these films, and this is my coup de gras. This is the story about me, why I became a filmmaker, all the little things mm-hmm. that made me who I am. If anyone ever had any questions. This is me on the canvas. But, uh, okay, let's, let, I think I got this. Okay. Are you sure? I think so. Because this is our second time around. This is our second time around. We're burning tape today. With a lot of tape. But I think I got my consensus ideas on it is the movie is just kind of okay. It's good, but the first half is really solid, and yeah. the last half is not nearly as good. Yeah, I, I kind of feel the same way, you know, but there's a lot of movies like that where, you know, the opening act through the middle is just really solid storytelling, and then you get towards, you know, the climax of the movie, and it starts to teeter a little bit. Yeah. And it's like, I wasn't sure where this movie was going to end, if we were going to, you know, end with Spielberg on, like, his first day of his first, you know, major motion picture or his first day on set. So it was interesting to kind of see where we left off in the story. Yeah, because the movie ends with him essentially getting the the last piece of advice he needs to become a great filmmaker. Or his um, his baptism into Hollywood. Yeah, that's actually a good way to put it. Like when he is finally like ordained by the god of cinema, yes. he, then he's able to kind of move on. But it's it's one of those things where I kind of want to get the opening salvo out, being that I did like the movie. Yeah. I thought it was good. It's just I felt so underwhelmed by it by the end of the movie. And I wonder if you felt the same way. Did you expect this to be like a top five Spielberg thing going into it and it came out as like eh, maybe a top 15? I wasn't too sure. Um, it was a thing where it was just so advertised and it was everywhere that I was kind of like, I love Spielberg, but the more you put it in my face, the more I'm going to be kind of resistant to watch it. And yeah. that that was kind you of... You hate over-advertisements yeah. in everything. Not everything, but, you know, the more it's out there, it's kind of like, okay, you know, I'll get to it when I get to it. And, you know, I really liked the movie, but definitely not in the top five, uh, especially when I was doing the research and seeing that where they left the ending. They kind of left it open for a possibility of another film. Wait, is there is there actually thinking of doing a Fableman's 2? Uh, Spielberg said that they're, you know, he's open to 
Wow. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, where they go with this. Because, um, I mean, his career is still going. Yeah. So it's like, you know, there's no ending in sight. So it's like, okay, we, we have Sammy at CBS. And then where do we go next? Where do they stop? It, I would be very annoyed if they made a Fablemans 2. Yeah, because here's the thing. Fablemans works as a normal movie about a person. Mm-hmm. And the conceit is that we all know he's Spielberg. Like yeah. every this is sold on Spielberg's autobiography. Mm-hmm. But you can kind of put yourself into it because, well, it's not Steven Spielberg. It's Sammy Fableman, and it's a little easier for you to adapt and relate to it. But if the sequel starts with Sammy Fableman, you're going to be making this movie called Jaws and then E.T. and then all these other things. Like once, it's, once e- it'll start dropping the veil, and I think that would be a big failure for it as or, a sequel. Or, you know, opening crawl and then five years later. Or 10 years later. And it's like, well, how are we going to do, you know, some of these big films? Are we going into the archives and we're going to pull out, you know, actual footage? Are they going to recreate some of these iconic movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jurassic Park, uh, Schindler's List? It's like, how are you going to do all these major films as Sammy, you know, years later? Yeah, and it'd be a whole thing where... Look, I didn't know they were going to try and make a sequel out of this. If they ever do, I mean, I would, I'd, I'd probably see it, honestly. There's it's no Spielberg. guarantee, but it, it was one of those things where it's kind of like, I'm not closing the door on it, but it's like, that's going to take a lot of time and a lot of work to get all of that to work because these movies are so big and so renowned and so loved by people. But we should probably tell people what this movie's about. We probably should. Yeah, uh, we kind of danced around it a little bit, but it is Steven Spielberg's essential autobiography. Mm-hmm. Names have been changed to protect the innocent. Of course. But yeah, like I've seen a lot of interviews with him talking about growing up and this is kind of his beat for beat what's going on. But here's the general idea of what the movie's about on the back of the box. Oh, okay. I was was just waiting for you to start reading the back of the box. Uh, You know, build up, build up. Okay. Sammy Fableman falls in love with the movies when he is a small child after seeing The Greatest Show on Earth, and we follow him as he grows up and develops his filmmaking eye as the m- m- filmmaking eye. I'm gonna get through this, God. God damn it! <clears throat> difficult box, huh? It's a very difficult box. Develops his filmmaking eye as the marriage of his free-spirited mother and technical-minded father falls apart. Things converge when Sammy edits together a home movie as a gift for his mother and discovers his mother's emotional affair with his father's best friend, which eventually leads to his parents' divorce when he graduates high school. The film culminates with Sam splitting his time between his parents and pursuing his dream of being a filmmaker, leading to him getting a job at CBS and his first step to that dream and a chance meeting with his idol and the greatest director to have ever lived. So that last sentence of him getting CBS, that's like the last, what, 10 minutes of the movie, five minutes of the movie? Like, yeah, five minutes. Yeah, and most of that is taken up by one of the best walk-on cameos of uh, the year. I mean, I was so surprised. I mean, (laughs) wasn't expecting it. Uh, There's two insanely good, like, one-scene cameos. Um, I think it's it's the ending one. We'll Mm -hmm. get to that in a second. Um, And the first one is, I believe his name is... Uh, Jared Hirsch, Judd Hirsch, uh, Uncle Boris, Uncle Boris, which oh my god, so good. Also, you know, from the advertising of the movie and you know it being at the Oscars, I thought Uncle Boris was in the story 
a lot longer than we had him. I think he had a supporting actor nod. He did. He was nominated. And it's a thing where you're like, he steals the movie the moment he shows up. And it's such a big and bombastic performance. And you're like, yeah, you are like the the guy Mm -hmm. for this whole like 10 minutes of the movie. But... There, that is kind of the tragedy of the movie. It was nominated for seven Oscars and won zero. Yeah, didn't win any Oscars. Um, it was also his thirteenth Best Picture not or nominee or nomination. Nomination. Thank Cause, you. Because it's Steven Spielberg, and he probably has a record at this point. Yeah, I think he's tied with somebody else. Um, John Ford. No, uh, William Wyler. Oh yeah, William Wyler's good. Yeah. yeah so it, it was a thing where it's like really. 13. Yeah, he's not stopping at 13. He's going to keep going, you know, maybe 20, 30. Well, this is the interesting thing. And let's just get this out of the way. You know, Steven Spielberg. Thoughts on Steven Spielberg? I love Steven Spielberg. He's one of my top three favorite directors. See, I think, honestly, if I had to line up the pantheon of the quintessential American directors, he's on there somewhere. Mm -hmm. Honestly, because... What is it? From 1970-something? Basically when Jaws comes out. From Jaws to... Duel. Or Duel. I I say Jaws because that's when he basically established himself as the king of blockbuster Hollywood popcorn flicks, right? first major motion picture. Yeah, his first major motion picture. From Jaws pretty much to now, Fableman's. Yeah. There has never been a lull in his career. All of his... Even his movies that didn't do well never damaged his career reputation mm. he, he's almost like martin scorsese in that way where from their first movie all the way up to now they've always been able to just connect with the audience absolutely and spiel whereas scorsese connects in like a very like kind of artistic way you know he's he's trying to like be experimental spielberg goes right for your heart yes and he's he really gets that like americana like nostalgia schmaltz like he he gets that mm-hmm. but the Fablemans is him kind of trying to lift the veil of being like, guys, I know all my movies are about, you know, divorced parents and aliens and sharks and, you know, me being Jewish. But here's me behind the mask. It is exactly what I've been telling you through my movies for the last 40 years. Yeah. And I mean, you kind of see that with, you know, marriages not being, you know, working in his movies. It's kind of like a cathartic thing for him where he's trying to heal the past and it's interesting to see you know the familial struggle that they grew up with with his mom being in love with her husband's best friend mm-hmm. and it makes you think you know well how far did this go back was it ever a thing where before she was married you know pick me pick me you know maybe i, I chose the wrong person but it, it's interesting to see you know years later they all kind of you know came around and they were all friends and her and the ex-husband were able to become friends again so it kind of healed yeah it's which you don't usually get yeah it's real it is a really unique circumstance in that way of like like the movie basically plays out as like you know again his dad and his mom they really do love each other Mm -hmm. but she is very much a person that just can't deal with her husband with Mm -hmm. with the father figure um oh i I really should have written down everyone's names. It's Paul Dano and uh, Michelle Williams yeah. is, are the actors. So, like, Michelle Williams' character, because they're they're not one for one his parents, but they're pretty much his parents. Yeah. Um. So, Michelle Williams' character, she loves Paul Dano's character, but 
Paul Dano's um, character, the father in this, uh, I think his name is Bert, is the definition of emotionally unavailable. I guess, or he's he's that's not the right way. He's too smart for his own good. He can't talk to people without over explaining how everything works. It, it shows in the first like part of the movie. He can't turn it off. He can't turn it off exactly. And the opening of the movie when Sammy's like what's a movie and he's like yeah and he's like oh it's these little lights and a big lamp and this machine turns things at 24 frames a second and the persistence of image and his mom is like it is a dream mm-hmm. that you can't wake up from it's just a beautiful dream and that lays out the dichotomy of these two people he is like it's a machine and you can figure it out and she's like it is something wonderful that you can't imagine. You have a type A brain married to a type B brain where it's just you know very um very technical and then you have the very artistic side and it's just it works but they are just so extreme in the things that they're into that it just kind of clashes with each other instead of just kind of melding yeah and she finds comfort in um seth rogan's character the best friend mm-hmm. which also kudos to seth rogan like showing up and not being distracting because he he kind of is selling this yeah i was very surprised i was like whoa this is not you know your typical seth rogan but he's also evolved as an actor over the years yeah and the other thing is he's being directed by steven spielberg yeah. and i saw an interview and it steven spielberg tried to get had seth rogan like tone it down a lot and like really play just like a normal charming guy which he is essentially really good at playing a normal charming guy and also his parents are mitzi and bert yes and seth rogan is benny benny and the whole but that's like the crux of the entire movie really is the story of these two people who come together and they create sammy who is steven spielberg steven spielberg really interested in the arts but his real skill is solving the problems of creating films Mm -hmm. you know how do you make the bullet hole show up in your movie i poked holes in the celluloid how do i make um explosions when it looks like somebody's being you know a grenade goes off you put the wood in the dirt Mm -hmm. and it looks like you know explodes when you step on it uh how do i like figure this out or that out he is his father's technical mind applied to the artistic endeavors his mother would enjoy Mm -hmm. he's this perfect combination and it's very interesting because he's their perfect combination but the parents and the parents like don't work and he has a lot of like resentment to that and like his mother i don't i read that his mother probably had some sort of like manic depressive personality because mm-hmm. again michelle williams performance is fantastic yes it is and she goes from well, so this, is paul dano i mean my god paul dano paul dano on the lowest of keys is the mvp of this movie yeah because paul dano uh, paul dano in this movie could easily play the disapproving father of why are you interested in them movies why can't you just you know learn things you know learn something useful with your life apply yourself to something that'll matter but he's very much like i mean i wish you would like take an interest in algebra or math but it's your hobby i get it you love doing Mm -hmm. it maybe you'll grow out of it he's playing a normal ass father yeah not like 80s movie father yeah where they're just kind of like whatever cool as long as you know you're safe 
don't bug me with it. Five dollars, all right. Here, here's the five dollars. Take it. He's very involved, and you see that throughout the movie. Even though he does disapprove with uh, Sammy's, you know, desire to be a filmmaker, and I think it's more he's just afraid for him to really kind of divulge into the art. I mean, that comes into the whole fact when Boris shows up, Uncle Boris, yeah, and love it's Uncle like Uncle Boris. <laughs> Uncle Boris is great, but he shows up, and it's like oh, this is what happens to the artists who kind mm-hmm. of fail. He's this kind of vagabond who doesn't really have any roots. He loves the art of the show, but he has nothing to really show for it. And I think that's the fear that um, Bert has, Paul Daniels' character has. But then you see the opposite side of the coin where, you know, Bert's very successful and by the end, you know, gets a sweet house. Yeah. And he's, you know, just this intelligence that he's able to, you know, rack up who knows how much in the bank. But, you know, the flip side with, like, Uncle Boris, you know, he's lived this adventure of a life. And it's like, yeah, I might be living out of a suitcase, but I've got so many stories and, you know, it's been worth it. I don't care if I don't have, you know, a home to call my own. I just go on to my next journey right after. It, it is that it's the sad tragedy of it all because because it is this whole thing that Sammy, our, our lead, uh, has to deal with is that I feel is never really confronted because Sammy is all in on movie making. Mm-hmm. He only falls away from it when he, you know, sees the truth through the lens, when he sees the the parent yeah. affair kind of thing. That's heartbreaking. It It is really sad, but that's, that's the thing. He, that's the only time he puts the camera down. It's never a thing where he's like, ah, I don't know if I can actually make this work. I don't know if I could be this. He always has that heart of an artist. And it never feels like his dad has anything to stand on other than being an obstacle. But yeah. that's a whole that's a whole thing. Um, but Michelle Williams uh, playing Mitzi. Mitzi, thank you. Um, Michelle Williams, she's doing a great job here. Uh, I think she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. I believe so. Yeah, which is weird because she's like the she's like the lead in this. Like she's really that like the emotional barometer for the movie. Yeah. Like, we see everything through Sammy's eyes, but she's really driving the point, driving the narrative, driving everything. And, I, okay, w- did Mitzi grate on you after a while? A little bit, but I, I think it just goes with, you know, she is the eccentric. She's the artist. It's just, you know, at first it, it's kind of cute, and after a while, you know, it gets to be a bit much. But you're seeing that she's kind of going through this crisis, where she's stuck between these two people. She's got her family. But then, you know, she's got the artistic side too. So it's like, okay, let's adopt a monkey when we come back to California. And it's like, well, who has a monkey as a pet? She yeah. She's the definition of a person that is great in five-minute intervals. I would go insane if I had to, like, spend hours and hours with her in, like, in like a, a uh, um, social environment. Yeah, she, I guess. Once she starts getting the monkey out and it starts, like, clawing at your hair, then then we'll talk. Well, when it's throwing the light bulbs, light bulbs are very expensive to be, you know, just throwing them at a wall. But, yeah, yeah but I, I also think, you know, it, it goes to just, you know, the stress and not being happy in her relationship. So it's manifesting in different ways where it's like, you know, let's adopt this pet. Let's do this. Let's do that. And, you know, you have Bert that's kind of like, you know, you don't even play music anymore. You know, you're... You don't cook. You're not acting like yourself. And she's just in the midst of this crisis where, you know, it's going to be one thing that sets her off. 
and it could be absolutely anything. Yeah, and that is that is like the crux of the whole story is the parental relationship and what I thought was going to be the main drive of the movie is Sammy learning about filmmaking, him kind mm-hmm. of like what inspires him to make movies, the movies that he like him him learning his craft at a young age and kind of building upon it yeah. which is like done in a montage. Yeah, it's very fast. We never really get to see, you know, oh, this is how I came up with the idea. I mean, where we really get the focus is when he sees his first movie. Yes. And it's uh, The Greatest Show on Earth Mm -hmm. uh, by Cecil B. DeMille. And, you know, not coincidentally, but coincidentally, Fablemans was released on the 70th anniversary of uh, Greatest Show on Earth. So it was kind of cool to see this, you know, full full circle moment for him where it's like this one movie started my career and inspired this, you know, art form that I live for, breathe for. And let's do my life story, have it, you know, come out the same year as this movie. But that's where we really see where he's like, you know, he gets his train set and then it's I got to see it crash. I And, and there's no, you know, expl- I got to see it crash. Well, I love that because, again, like. I think we touched on it earlier, you know, that it li- that opening scene lays out the whole movie, yeah. you know, where it's dad's explaining it technically, his mom is explaining it, like, artistically. Mm-hmm. But how he reacts to it is perfect and makes total sense to me because he sees it and it scares him. And mm-hmm. he doesn't – and he wants to figure out how it happened so he doesn't have to be scared of it anymore. Yeah. And, he, you know, they get the train set, they build it, and he's crashing it, and then his mother figures out – that's what's going on. That's why he's crashing his train set. He wants to figure it out. Because his dad just sees, you know, he's being a destructive little boy. That's, you know, I, I got him this really nice train car and he just wants to, you know. To smash it. He just wants to smash it. And his mom's like, no, you know, he, he's he got a vision. He's got to see it. And if we record it, you could watch it over and over again. And you don't have to break your train set. Exactly. And I think that's that's like perfect, right? Because mm-hmm. they get they give him the camera. He shoots. He shoots it. And that is like the first steps where it's like, oh, there, there you go. This is like the the superhero origin story mm-hmm. of one Steven Q. Spielberg. The Q if, stands the for Q? the the Q stands for excellence, ah, or schmaltz, depending on who you talk to. But it's interesting because we stick with the young kid story for a while. Yeah, it's a good chunk of the beginning of the movie, and I mean, it makes sense because you know this is. You know, his first movie and, you know, he's finally doing something to kind of, you know, match that experience that he had. And then we see the the drive and the the cute, you know, let's make movies with my sisters, you know, where, where they're mummies or you know, they're at the, the, the dentist. dentist. Yeah. And it's just you see the creativity in this young boy. And it's like, you know, this isn't just a young boy playing. This is, you know, somebody that's on their path. Yeah, he's figuring it out. And... We get the entire thing, like, you know, the entire thing of, like, oh, is it going to be just him, like, learning his craft and building it up? And all that is done in in this montage mm-hmm. where it's, you know, the dentist and the mummy. Mm-hmm. And this is going on until we get to him basically having to move. Yeah, when they move to Arizona. Yeah, because the whole first part is in New Jersey. Then it moves them to Arizona because uh, Bert gets a new job doing mm-hmm. science stuff. He's a computer engineer, but this is back when computers were in rooms. Yeah. And he goes to Phoenix, and then we cut right into teenage Sammy. 
Right? Yeah, you know, he's with like the Boy Scouts or Eagle Scouts. Yeah, he's he's a Boy Scout. And this is another thing that's kind of true to the Spielberg canon, which of course Steven Spielberg was a Boy Scout. Of course he was. Come on, guys. Let's let's be honest here. Pure Americana. And it's him still exploring, you know, making movies. And it's him kind of making his first real, like, you, I we would call him like student films or mm-hmm. whatever. But he's making like a real movie he gets all of his boys together you know it's the whole eagle scout troop he makes a movie about you know a stagecoach robbery right mm-hmm. which gets homage that ties into the end we'll get to yes, that yes it we'll ties get, into the end but, we'll you, we'll but you've that. got you know bert while well, he still thinks that this is a hobby and this is a you know kind of a thorn in the side of the movie where it's just you know his dad doesn't see his vision Mm. It's just kind of like, you know, don't follow the arts, you know, do something that's, you know, actually a job. But but there's Bert, you know, helping with the stagecoach, you know, fanning in dust. So it's like, you know, he's not 100% on board with this, but he, he's there for his kid. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that makes the Bert character work so well is that he is a good father. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, he might not be a good husband, but he's a good father. And I think that's what Spielberg's trying to impart on the audience because once they get the divorce at like the near the end of the movie, yeah. like that the whole crux of it, and this is what Spielberg's like the family secret that he's been hiding his whole life, that you know, that's what this movie is revealing. Mm-hmm. Is that his dad, when they got the divorce, he took the blame for it. He did. He was like, yeah, I'm the, I'm why we're getting the divorce. He's like, I want to keep working here. Your mom wants to move back to Arizona. We can't deal with that. So we're getting a divorce. And he was acting like the bad guy just so his kids could, you know, still have that kind of connection with their mother. You know, oh, she's not leaving us. She's, you know, moving back to Arizona. It'll be fine. And Spielberg basically hid that for his entire life because he knew when he was like 13 or 14 and that was like a thing him and his mom would talk about and yeah. he was the only kid privy to this for however long and and actual you know spielberg lore you know he didn't talk to his dad for 15 years because he assumed his dad was you know the reason for this divorce and he was kind of just like you know i don't agree with this and it wasn't until later he found out no dad took the blame so that mom could be you know basically the good guy yeah and it's just kind of like you know that goes to his dad's character where it's like no he is a genuinely good guy it's just he can't shut off the shop talk yeah and it's not like you know people might be thinking for those who haven't seen the movie that when we're like oh he's has this very weird like way of talking to people he has trouble connecting that's not really it. What it is is there's a scene really early in the movie. I think it's during the Hanukkah stuff when he's getting the, mm-hmm. um, the train cars. The train cars, and it's Bert and Benny. Mm-hmm. And Bert is explaining a transistor thing, and he's talking about well, this this uh, charge goes in, and mm-hmm. it has a specific wavelength. And when it connects to the transistor, it's going to take that and lead it down these copper wiring, mm-hmm. and that's going to connect to the circuit. And when it connects to that circuit, it's going to then take all those electrical impulses set all the data, and then transport that out into the screen. And Benny then says, look, kids, it's like air in a balloon. You put the air, the balloon expands, and when it gets high enough, you tie it off, and then it floats. Mm -hmm. And that floating is the data. And then Mitzi says, oh, Bert, I love your brain, especially when Benny can tell me what's in it. Yeah. And that's the thing. Bert Bert cannot just talk normal to people like he is like he's too smart for his own good yeah 
And that's Mitzi's problem. Like, Mitzi feels like she is with somebody who is so kind of, like, beyond her Mm -hmm. intellectually and all these other things that she can't connect with him really. It's intimidating. Yeah, but she can connect with Benny because, again, Benny can communicate with her. Yeah, because Benny's in the same field as Bert. Uh, They work together, but it's a thing where he knows how to shut it off and he could also kind of downplay it too. Mm -hmm. And Bert really can't do that because that's how Bert's brain operates. And the whole Benny and Mitzi relationship is kind of, it's weird, okay? Because, again, he's like Uncle Benny, family friend, been around forever. Yeah. And it's like, okay, this is like a guy in the, what, mid-60s who's mm-hmm. like, lives by himself. Is he like, you know, one of those like confirmed bachelor kind of things? Mm-hmm. Is that what Bert assumes kind of deal? Or is it a, in when there's the whole, you know emotional affair because i again i think even mitzi says there was never anything physical yeah i i, I kind of like that scene where you know she goes off she's pissed off and she's talking to um sammy and she goes i know your brain's probably running around thinking that you know i've done the worst of the worst and i haven't and it's just kind of like you know an emotional affair is just as bad as a physical affair so it's like you know there's really no coming back from that but it's just you know, when there's someone else in the picture, you know, it's obviously go off with the other person because, you know, if you wanted the first person, there wouldn't even be an inkling of that second person in your in your, your sphere. In right? your sphere, no. It's it's one of those things where the movie, once it gets to the Phoenix portion, that's where a lot of the conflict kicks in for the yeah. for the Mitzi Burt relationship because he because she's like, You gotta take Benny along. Like, yeah, we can't you, you go can't, without Benny. You can't just leave him behind. Yeah, like, he's your best friend. He's Uncle Benny. The kids love him. Like, what? You mm-hmm. know? Like, you get... And he's like, I can't do that. You know? Like, I'm just going to get hired there. Mm-hmm. I don't have the kind of pull to hire people. And she's like, you're the manager. You hire people. Mm-hmm. Hire Benny. And Benny goes along with him to Phoenix. Yeah. And at that point, I don't know if even Mitzi knows why she's doing it. I think she's honestly like, well, he's part of the family. Like, we can't leave him. That's yeah. like leaving the family dog. Like, what the hell? Yeah, I think that's how it is, too. I mean, you know, there's probably like a small inkling, but it was just kind of, you know, he is so attached to our family that we can't leave him behind. And then, you know, it just progresses and, you know, it becomes even more of a relationship. Yeah, and, and it starts then, getting to a very dangerous point. Yeah. Okay, dangerous point maybe not be the right word. You know, no one's getting shot or nothing. But no. it is a thing where it gets to a very, you know emotionally volatile point yeah because you think you know if benny hadn't gone out could they have resolved things and you know kind of worked at it or i mean not him because he's not really aware of what's going on yeah i feel like i feel like bert's in the dark for a lot of the movie but it's like you know bert you're there you gotta see you know some of these signs the thing where it's like she really goes off and talks to benny a lot when Mm -hmm. they're around you know they're like, they're friendly. They're really cool to each other. But it's, it's, it is kind of weird. It does feel like Bert is always, like, totally unaware of it. Mm-hmm. Like, I have no inkling. Oh, yeah, you know, Uncle Benny comes over. Yeah, he's my best friend. Yeah, him and my wife get along fine. But, but it's like, but, they get along, did, like, really, really well. But did I tell you I came up with this thing to, you know, simplify this and get this going? And it's just like... it It is very... It is very odd, Right. Like, mm-hmm. I I do feel like they're simplifying things for the sake of, you know, the movie. 
right? I, I can't imagine in real life somebody wouldn't pick up on that. Oh, no. I mean, that's how, you know, Bert's brain operates where it's like, you know, okay, cool. Benny's here. Let me tell Benny of this idea that I have. And it's just, you know, I came up with this idea and this will simplify this and, you know, the math and the this and the this and the that. And it's like he's so focused on his career and these things that he's coming up in his in his head because he's a a genius, basically. Yeah. The movie and, presents him as such. So it's, you know, it's kind of interesting to see that's how his brain operates instead of kind of noticing the small little details that are happening around him. And that's when we get that scene where uh, Sammy's making the, the movie about the camping trip. Yes. And he starts to see these little things that are happening in the background of all the frames. And you see he's losing his innocence every time he sees, you know, the two of them are off together. And then especially when they start holding hands and they're walking in the woods together and you just kind of see he's dying inside a little bit. Yeah, that's that is one of the more powerful scenes in the movie because it is that moment where Sammy, I, I think I mentioned it, he sees the truth in the camera mm-hmm. and the truth hurts him, right? Yeah. And as he's trying to build this together and he's tr- and he figures out what's going on and it, it is like that power of editing, right? Mm-hmm. You know? He as he's building this video or this movie to show his mom to like make to cheer her up because uh, I think his grandmother just died. Yes, and trying to cheer her up, and then when he gets it together, he's like, "I can't put this in the movie because this isn't what people want to see." And this he cuts is... it and puts it on its own reel. And then when his mom is asking, "Why are you so mad at me? Why are you being a little shit?" Yeah, and I mean, Sammy, you know, totally takes this the way that you know. Uh, teenager preteen child should take this where you start to see that you know there's something wrong your parent is doing something wrong and there's not really much that i can do so you know acting out and ignoring you you know giving you the silent treatment being a shitty teenager being a shitty teenager but it's also you know this is catastrophic news that i have and i can't tell anyone else in the family because the the family will implode yeah. And, and it's just, it leads to that boiling point where the both of them just kind of go off on each other. And it also leads to the best, one of the best scenes in the movie. Yeah. The Michelle Williams, like, Oscar bait clip, like, straight up, where he, they, she's like, I'm so sorry. Just please tell me what I did wrong. Please don't be mad at me. And Sammy wordlessly closes the his bedroom door, leads his mom into the closet where he has his projector set up, lines the reel up, and plays it. Yeah. And clothes and leaves her in there by herself and she watches the movie and he breaks down on the bed oh and he cries and then when she bursts out after the movie's over she's in tears yanks the the um projectors like a power off and she's like crying and they have the whole breakdown and all this stuff in that moment we realize that she didn't know she was having these feelings for benny mm-hmm. and it ruins her because now she's like now that I see it, I can't unsee it. You can't avoid it. You're right. And that's the thing that hurt Sammy so much. Sammy saw it. And now he can't unsee it. And now he sees his mother as somebody completely different than mm-hmm. before. And when he shows Mitzi that, now she is also affected by it. And now they both know that we know the, the marriage is a ticking clock. It is. But I love that with, you know, all that, you know... That gunpowder that we have, you know, waiting for this marriage to explode, that Sammy and his mother still have a relationship. Yes. Because, you know, with a lot of relationships, you know, if a child found this out, they might just cut it off with that parent and be like, you know what? 
you've you know committed this cardinal sin. I can't. Sammy tried that. That's that's what led to them having this whole blow up and yelling at each other, and that that didn't work. It didn't work, but you know it's also uh, Mitzi. You know loves her children, so it's a thing. You know, just like when she hits him on the back right before we see you know the scene where he reveals why he's so angry at her, not talking to her. Mm-hmm. As soon as she connects, she breaks into tears, and you could see it in her eyes that she feels so sorry, so guilty, and it's like you know. You know, we've all been, you know, hit by our parents. You know, we can all in some retrospect kind of, you know, connect with that scene. But it's just, you know, the level of Michelle Williams, you know, being able to feel like, you know, she hit her kid, but immediately she regretted it. Yeah. You don't see it like, you know, like, I'll do it again. You know, not not that kind of, you know, like behavior, but it's just like, oh it, my God. It wasn't uh, just, this is to let you know who's the parent in this relationship. No. It was, you called me out of my shit and I, and I don't know how to, how to react to this. It's like, I've been at my boiling point. I finally snapped and I immediately regret it. And it's just, I love that he's able to explain to her why he's being the way that he's being without saying a single word. The power of cinema. Kino. Cinema. Cinema. And then the movie starts taking kind of a downhill once they move to California. And that's kind of where this happens. Yeah, I mean, you'd think that once we get to California, because I was excited. Mm -hmm. I'm like, we're going to California. We're going to see when he's, you know, sneaking onto the lot at Universal and walking around. I'm like, we're finally getting that. We've heard that on the tour so many times. We don't get it. Well, yeah, because he moves into like Northern California. And it's like a whole thing where he's like, that is the... um, the the trick that I think a lot of Hollywood plays on people is that, oh, California is just like, it's all Hollywood. Like, you move to California, it's all picture business. It's so No. It's, it's a very small city. It Yeah, it's Hollywood, and then the rest of California is a different world. Like, we yeah. live, like, less than an hour away from Hollywood, maybe. It's mostly traffic. Yeah, yeah, whatever. It's we're, like, we're like an hour, less than an hour. We might as well live in a different country. Yeah, Honestly. I mean, realistically, when I do all our planning for events, our destination to Hollywood is about 35 minutes. Yeah, it's and that's like the, the thing. And I think that's the point that Spielberg's making here is like, yeah, I went to California. I didn't get anywhere near the movies. What are you talking about? I grew yeah. up in fucking Modesto. Yeah, I mean, he didn't go to like, you know, Hollywood high school like, you know, a lot of actors. Uh, I don't know about too many directors, but you hear about some of these actors. Oh, yeah, I went to Hollywood high school. You know, I was down the street from, you know, the Chinese theater, the Egyptian theater. It's like. No, he went to Northern California, and then he was bullied because he's Jewish. It's like what? Boo, boo! This is like 1962. All right, like let's let's be honest here. Boo! The civil rights movement didn't even happen yet. All right. I mean, that little shit that was bullying him. I wanted to go through the screen and just beat the crap out of him, like string bean. I will snap you in half. See, this is another thing where why I feel this section of the movie feels the weakest is because it feels the most movie movie to me because he gets okay I'll, I'll explain I'll explain I mean I'm not laughing at that it's just, we also got to talk about uh Jesus oh yes that's why okay yeah this so the third section of the movie because it's it, the movie's basically split up to three little sections Jersey Phoenix and California, California. Jersey is him falling in love with movies Phoenix is him learning how to make movies, mm-hmm. and California is him kind of reconciling his 
his feelings about movies yeah, right because he's not making movies yeah because you know he the whole camping trip fiasco him being like i can't pick up a camera again i saw too much when i looked through the lens and now it haunts me yeah california is him kind of trying to learn how to harness that and reconnect with it and falling back in love well, with it it's mostly mitzi mitzi wants him to get behind the camera and his dad's like well, you know, he's he's kind of falling out of the hobby. Just, you know, just let him, you know, let him find something else. And Mitzi's like, you have a... A gift. A gift, yes. I was going to say a passion. No, he is a gift. And it's like, you can't let go of that. And it's like, you know, without his mother driving him, we might not have Spielberg. It, it does feel like a whole thing where he's like, curse my inevitable talents. Ah, <laughs> oh, cinema has cursed me with this. My God. And it's, well, it, well, I mean, it feels you know, like that, honestly. Leading into one of the scenes in, you know, this third part, you know, when he's dealing with one of his bullies from the school, he tells him, you know, that's not me. I, I pick up what the camera shows. It, we're going to get to that. We will. Because that's, that's the one standout great part of this section. But, yeah, but that's, you know, kind of been his thing where it's just, you know, I pick up what the camera shows me. Yes. That we're going to get to that because yes, that's that's the money shot of this whole section. But leading up to that. Yeah. He gets to California. His he has the the one anti-Semitic bully that is a straight up psychopath. He is. And then straight up crazy. person. I don't know how this little shrimp racist shrimp, you know, has these big jocks that kind of, you know. Oh, this is funny. Okay, let's do this. Again, it's well, it's the thing where it's the cruelty of teenage boys, right? Yeah. Like, you will pick on anybody because of many, many reasons, honestly. Yeah. But this section feels the most movie-movie to me because mm-hmm. it feels the most, like, constructed. This feels like an, like, 80s, like, teen thing. Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Diary of a Kid because Sammy, again, Sammy is, like, this kind of meek person for most of the movie you know quiet you know but introspective kind of kid but genius yeah yeah but he's a quiet kid and it gets to this part and it's like oh he's gonna get bullied by the literal walking like Aryan Mm -hmm. and his shrimpy like like nazi friend Mm -hmm. and he's going to like oh i gotta get through school oh man and then he falls in love with the (sighs) the the queen of jesus freaks that feels like this is a john hughes movie like in this i thought it was hilarious when we get to her room and she's got the shrine she's got pictures of jesus on the wall and she's i didn't recognize some of the other actors but you know it's like rock hudson james dean things like that yeah not exactly but you know those kind of headshots like in greece yeah the the heartthrobs the 60s heartthrobs heartthrobs. and you know it's this wall and you know sammy's kind of like oh man you really are kind of crazy and then the camera pans around and we see okay okay at this moment this is the moment where i was like okay fuck you movie (laughs) Fuck you, movie. There's no goddamn way this is going to fly. I mean... It's this... It is this... A, a, a fucking church would swoon at the sight of this crucifix on her wall. I mean, it's huge. I mean, it's something that you would find, obviously, in a prop house. I don't know how she would have found this on her it own. Is, it is straight up five feet tall with with Jesus up there looking like a, like a slice of cake. And it is around it this heart made of fucking christmas lights and she's like i'm gonna go take this nice jewish boy into my room so i might be able to get him to believe in jesus and then boink because jesus was a jew yeah she's trying to take a walk on the wild side that whole scene was just like what is happening 
tonal yeah, shift. Huge tonal shift to the fucking movie. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, most of the movie is this inspirational journey with heartbreak because that's basically what childhood is. You don't understand what's going around because your parents are very much people. It, but that, you see them as just your parents. The core of the movie is a kid growing up and learning his parents are people too. Yes. That is the core of the movie. It is him being like, oh, I love movies and capturing things through the camera. And as he grows up, as he's viewing through the camera and developing these cinematic skills of observation, he observes his parents and realizes that they are people too. They are not characters on a on a screen. You know, they are real human beings. You know, they are not. They are playing the parts of my parents, mm-hmm. but they are real people underneath it. Yeah. But this is a John Hughes sex comedy. This is sixteen candles shit. Yeah, here. this was a weird shift. Um, I know that Spielberg has said in interviews that you know a lot of the, what this movie is is fact. It's cl- it's really close to his real life. Yeah, and that was something that Seth Rogen had also said in an interview where, you know, he would ask, you know, Spielberg on set. He was like, hey, you know, this that's happening right now in the scene, is this true? And he'd be like, yeah, you know, this actually happened. And, you know, there was a lot of days where Spielberg would be crying on set because you're reliving these things that, you know, that live in your head. But to see it played out is like, oh, my God, you know, I'm reliving the past again. But so, this here does feel like okay, Stephen. Like let's let's be real here. It's honestly, like, I, I want to hear the story about this. Like, is this true? Did this really happen? It, it it is so ridiculous. It is either it is either this is exactly how it happened, or I made it up. There's no in between. Or it's just amplified. It. I can't. I cannot fathom this as like. Oh well, she was kind of religious, but you know that it wasn't like a big thing. No, this has to be. Oh no. Like she, that that five foot cross, we toned it down. It was seven foot two, and it took up the whole wall, and we toned it down. It is either that, or I just made it up. We needed like a good plot in the third act to be funny and lighten the mood until we get to the emotional endpoint. That has that, to be it. I swear. Why it'd be interesting to see, you know, if that's fact or fiction. Um, but we we both agree that the high school section is like the weakest part because it drives us right away from the from the narrative we followed up to this point yeah and then you know without the high school scene we wouldn't have the scene where he records ditch day or where he films ditch day where he falls back in love with cinema and learns that i have mm -mm -mm, i have this gift inside of me why god i have the power of cinema at my hands and it's you know really happening at the dinner table grandma's there the whole family the girlfriend is there and mitzi's just like you know you should do this. You should do this. And his dad's like, you know, he doesn't have to do this if he doesn't want to. And then the girlfriend tells him, well, my dad owns a, uh, an air something. An, that- uh, an Ariflex? Ariflex 60 millimeter there camera? You- oh, with the motor? Oh, and you got the shoulder mount too. Also, when, when she bought, when she busted out that camera, I used that same camera when I was in college. I remember. And I was like, eyeballing it. I'm like, Okay, I know, I know this camera. I know, I know how much time you got in that fucking reel. You, do you have enough rolls for this? But yeah. But but it was a thing where, you know, he was... You took know, kind me aback. Yeah, I, I figured. But it was this thing where, you know, he's trying to talk it down. The family's excited. Everyone's, you know, going off on their own tangents. And Mitzi's kind of like, we'll pay for whatever film you need. Whatever you need to get this done, we'll do it. And he's just kind of like, you've painted me into a corner because the girlfriend is giving me the camera for free to use for the day and all the accessories... Mom and dad are going to pay for the film and whatever I need to splice it and put it together. 
I have to do it. And it it works, you know, and, it, and it's one of those things where when they bring up the camera, he goes off with all the tech specs, whatever, mm-hmm. like I just did, right? Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, even if you don't want to make movies anymore because they you've experienced something that like... Mm-hmm. That like, devastated you. Yeah. He's like, movies have wronged me mm-hmm. by showing me the reality of my parents' relationship and I don't want to go back. But it is so ingrained into him that, oh, God damn it, I, I can't... I can't leave that well for too long, you know? But do you want to know something interesting, you know, with actual Spielberg and where the movie differs? Shoot. So he gives up filmmaking because of the tragedy of, you know, the fall of his parents' relationship. Mm. And in real life, it wasn't that that made him stop making movies at that age. Oh, really? He saw Lawrence of Arabia. I freaked out and was like, nothing could ever beat this movie. I have, I quit. I have heard, I give up my passion, my love for film. I have heard this story before in Spielberg interviews. <laughs> and it is like, okay, that is so relatable on an artistic oh, filmmaker absolutely. level, right? And obviously they're doing this because he's like, this is what the movie is about. It's about my parents and all this other stuff. And in another in the other's movie, you know, where oh, this is the story about him and him growing up and learning about movies and why he loves movies and like all the movies that inspired him. That would have been in there. Yeah. Because, like, I don't know if anybody has seen Lawrence of Arabia recently. It is a goddamn masterpiece. Oh, my God. I love that movie. Top top 10 greatest films ever made. Top like, 10 greatest scores ever composed. Like, some of the greatest performances mm-hmm. ever. Like, Omar Sharif is so yes. good. Like, Alan Guinness is so good. Fucking oh, Peter O'Toole. Like, my God. It is one of those things where it's like, yeah, okay, if I'm, like, you know, fucking 15 and i'm like i'll make pictures i make some of the greatest movies of all time watch lawrence of ray be like yeah nope wrap it up boys we can't top that no it's over yeah put it away i had something similar um when i was in school doing you know my my stuff for my photography uh you know once i got towards the end of my uh portraits uh semester i you know had been building up building up building up and i finally came up with this concept idea i was able to shoot it achieve it and that was, I think, part of my final. And after I got it and created it, and I was like, oh, my God, there it is. After that, I'm like, I can't create anything else. Nothing will compare ever to this image that I created. And it took a while to get me to, you know, get back behind the camera. I mean, I had another semester, so obviously I had to pick up behind the camera. But it was just, you know, it was just kind of like it- my soul broke. I was like, oh, my God, you know, I, I did it, but what do I have next? Nothing. Nothing can top this. That feeling of being like, I've observed the peak. I don't know how to go beyond this. Exactly. And that is the thing about the ditch day footage, right? So um, Sammy films the ditch day. He creates this whole little story narrative. It's a lot of fun. It's like, you know, the, it would be top five senior videos of, you know, the year, right? I mean, you know, the whole ice cream in the mouth to pretend that everyone's getting pooped in their mouth by the gulls. A lot of fun. Yeah. But he takes one of the bullies, like the the tall, strapping Aryan gentleman, and he looks like a goddamn god. Again, he's 6'3", he's hitting these things, and he's doing the run, and it's the slow-mo. It's St. Elmo's fire. Yeah, it's St. Elmo's fire, and he's doing the run, and it's slow-mo, and it's at this low angle, and he looks- It's golden hour, he's glistening. It it looks like Sammy straight up oiled him up beforehand. Very homoerotic. (laughs) And then he shows it, and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, let's go, Chet, woo, woo. And and it's so good that Chet's girlfriend, who's like on the outs with him, doesn't like him, is like, you looked really good up there. 
You want to you wanna go get a malt and, after and, this? And you're way off. His name's Logan. Logan. Of course it's Logan. <laughs> look at him. So he goes up and he's like, Logan, ooh, you look good up there on the big screen. You want to go out and get a malt later? And his and Sammy's like Christian girlfriend, they, they like just broke up at prom, right? But after she yeah. sees the movie, she's like, oh, Sammy, you're kind of talented. Wait, where did, where did Sammy go? He's not by the projector. She's over waiting by the projector and Sammy's like, deuces, I'm out. They can have the real. I don't care, you know. Right? But then he goes... And then we have, again, probably the best scene of the movie. Best, like, two scenes of the movie. Definitely the second scene, because we didn't talk about the first best scene of the movie. Uh, not not with his Uncle Boris? No, not that. Oh, okay. Well, let's talk about this scene, then we'll we'll, we'll round back to, like, okay. our favorite scenes, okay. right? But it gets to this, one of the best scenes of the movie, where Sammy's, like, uh, so, de- so dejected. His girlfriend just broke up with him. He had to show this Ditch Day movie, which he didn't really feel all that compelled to make because his parents are getting a divorce and he's just like kind of kind of out of it and but then, then fucking see, logan rolls in well but i mean you know he's you know feeling defeated and you know oh my god they're they're not gonna like my ditch day movie they already make fun of me and bully me everybody loves the movie becomes king of fucking the graduating class he does but then he's sitting there he's dejected and logan rolls in he's like dude what the fuck was that mm-hmm. and sam is like what do you what do you mean and he's like you made me look like a god up there. I've been nothing but a shit to you. Yeah. Like, what? why did you do that? And Sammy's like, I don't know. And he's like, no, no, you tell me. Tell me why you did that. And Sammy's like, I don't know, maybe I wanted you to be nice to me for five seconds. Or mm-hmm. maybe, like, I just, that's just how I shot you. You looked good on camera. You popped, so I made you the star. That, that's when we get, you know, round robin again. The camera doesn't lie. I shoot what I see. And the camera tells the truth. You look, dude, you looked good on camera. You look like a movie star. Yeah. So you were the star of the movie. And this kid, to the point that you had, a very personal point of he's like, I'm not that guy up mm-hmm. there. He's like, I'm the fastest kid in this county. I've worked really hard at that. I've achieved great things. I have awards. I'm the varsity da-da-da. Mm-hmm. I'm the captain of this. But you made me look better than I could ever be up there. Yeah. I can't be that guy. Everything after this is me trying to live up to an impossibility. Sammy has crushed this kid's confidence. Crushed his soul. Crushed his soul. And he like breaks down. He's he's crying. And it's a very I, like philosophical thing. I of, love that flip. Right? And it's it, I love it because it's this philosophical thing, right? Like, what did Sammy actually do? Oh, you made like a, a video where I look super cool, dude. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. But he's like, you made me look... Like a god. Like a god. I'm a I'm a mortal man. Like I like it it is like crushing his self image by showing him something that he could never be. Mm-hmm. And it's like but it's not just, oh, it's something I can never be. You used me to show me that yeah. I can't be the best I can be. And it's like it's it's such a well acted scene. It's so good. Uh, the the guy that played Logan, I think this is his first movie. No, I think he's been in a couple other movies. I I know that I know this is like pretty I, I, early for him. I recognize him. I just I'm not sure where I recognize him from. Uh, his name's Sam Rechner. Okay, Sam Rechner, great performance by oh, the way. Oh yeah, he was also in a movie called Ruby's Choice. Oh, you were right. He only has two acting credits. Again, great show. I'd love to see what this guy does next. Honestly, because this oh, is absolutely. so good, and he's only in like fucking ten minutes of the whole screen time, fifteen minutes maybe. But you know, you see him being this douchey jock bully to having a full existential crisis because and it it works and it works and it also goes with you know that whole kind of dread of graduating and it's like well you know i was the hot shit here what am i going to do next 
That's Correct. the real world. The real world is next. What am I going to do? And and apparently he is real. Yeah. You know, he was. And I, I think some, you know, he and Steven Spielberg got in contact around the time that he made Duel. Okay. So it was a thing where, you know, they had talked and I think he was like a police officer or something. So it was kind of like, you know, you know, see, you are doing good. But, you know, it's just, I love this where he just, you know, completely strips him apart, you know, takes, you know, this whole machismo and, the you know, the varsity, takes it away from the, him. The power of cinema made him feel something he could not feel himself. Yes. And they bond over this. And it's one of those things where it's like, okay, now, now this section of the, the John Hughes section of the movie now makes sense, yeah. now pays off in this really good and profound way. But God damn it. It's the, this section is still not good enough. Like, well, then you have Chad, the little shrimpy uh, racist. See, okay, I switched the names. There was a Chad. There was a Chad. Who comes in and he's pissed off at Sammy because Sammy, you know. Made him look like a fool, but made Logan look like a god. And it's like, it's true. You know, you know, Chad's the one getting rejected. He's stealing, you know, drinks from other people. People are being, like, shitty to him because he is a shitty person. Yeah, and, you know, he's alone on the beach, and he's ready to kick the shit out of Sammy. And that's when Logan steps up and beats the crap out of him and finally stands up for himself. And it's and that's the bonding moment, you know? That's the thing where it's like, you know what, Sammy? You're all right. Mm-hmm. Don't ever tell anyone I said that. Have a good one. And then they flip each other off. Flip each other off like some <laughs> fucking bros. And, and then Sammy's like... Fuck, I gotta keep at this. Like, he yeah. he realizes in that moment that, yeah, he saw, like, bad things through the lens. He was able to capture something that was able to affect somebody else so profoundly that he changed their view of themselves mm-hmm. and also, like, like, their relationship with him. And it's like, that's him realizing the power of cinema in yeah. his heart. And, you know, his parents get the divorce. And it's bounces to like a few years later i think it's like a year later it's not like a major jump it's like it's like a year or two like he basically makes peace with his mom and he's like you know i love you i understand what you got to do you know this whole secret we have Mm -hmm. i get it his dad has played the bad guy he has to live in the bachelor pad in california but him and his dad kind of like they they reconcile he's like you know dad's like i really wish you would do anything else with your life but you got a fucking gift, all right? And and I believe that that scene where, you know, Sammy's having the anxiety attack and his dad brings him down. He's like, your mom used to have these. It's okay. Let me do this for you. You know, he's he's parenting. He's, you know, he's calming him down. Apparently, that was shot on the one-year anniversary of his actual dad's passing. Yeah. So, you know, it's like... I forget. Because his father was like 103? Something. I, I They lived a long life and they passed, like, just before the movie was shot yeah and it was a thing where both of his parents were like well when are you gonna make a movie about us when are you gonna make a movie about our family and he finally got around to it you know during the pandemic writing you know the treatment and everything but i was just kind of like you know that must have been so cathartic because you know there was that 15 year disconnect between the two of them Mm -hmm. so i could totally see where you know instead of doing that he rewrote it where it's like you know no i went to live with my dad He's and trying to right the wrongs of his to, life. Exactly. And it's like, you know, I did the school thing for my dad, but then told him, you know, I couldn't do this. And his dad was like, you know what? You kind of, you know, extended yourself for me. Let me extend myself for you. Pursue your dreams. And here is your letter from CBS that you overglanced because you were having a panic attack. And he goes to CBS and the 
the producer is like, I'm doing this thing called Hogan's Heroes. It's going to be great, kid. But you know what? We're going to get this done. And I see your your letter here. You want to you wanna make moving pictures. You don't want to work in TV. Yeah. And Sam was like, well, yeah, I want to make movies. He was like, you know what, kid? I'm going to take a chance on you because I, I like you. But if you want to make movies, you got to meet this guy. He he works across the hall. Greatest director to have ever lived. You want to meet him? Sam was like, uh. Obviously. Sh- sure. Yeah, yeah. And he goes across the, the hall. Walks in, sits down in the in the office or whatever, and the guy's like, "All right, kid, good luck." And then the secretary's there. He's like, "He'll be in in a minute." And then we get the one or the pan around, and we realize I love the pan. I'm literally getting goosebumps right now. Yes. Pans around, and we find out where he is. We see the poster for Stagecoach, The Searchers, Grapes of Wrath, Grapes of Wrath, The Quiet Man. How green was my valley? How green was my valley? Man was shot Liberty Valance, and it's like he's about to meet John Ford. Yeah. Right? This is 1960-something, 65-something like that? Yeah, somewhere in there. And, again, John Ford canonized as, again, greatest director to ever lived, right? Mm-hmm. His competition is Hitchcock, Howard Hawks, maybe? Like, that's it? And it's like, okay, he's about to meet God, right? Literal I, about to meet God. But I love that they tied it back to Arizona when he was, you know, a Boy Scout. Mm-hmm. And it's him and his troop sitting in there watching... Uh, Man of Shot Liberty Valance. Exactly. And everyone, they're talking because, oh, he talked to a girl and, you know, give us all the... And he's like, shut up, shut up. And, you know, he moves away from them and he's sitting and he's just absorbing what's, you know, coming through the screen. And then we have that moment. When Sir David Lynch walks in playing John Ford in I, the I, greatest... John cam- Greatest cameo appearance in any film ever. <laughs> He I couldn't believe it. He's so good in this. But yeah, it, I love how it's David Lynch playing John Ford because he looks like pretty good. He looks kind of like a dead ringer for him, honestly, and, with the eye patch and the hat and everything. And it was something cool where, you know, David Lynch, you know, Mr. Um, Americana, um, uh, you know, the darkness of Americana kind no, of guy. Mr. Gordon Cole goes <sighs> past your screen pulling a very much Hitchcock kind of, you know, uh, cameo walking through and it's kind of you have to do a double take you know was that just david lynch and you know he's so scruffy and worn down well it was also you know david lynch that was like you know hey give me the costume i'm gonna wear this for a couple of weeks because i really want it to be worn in worn in because that's how um john ford was he's like i want to really look the part and we get the scene and spielberg has told this story I think probably in every interview he's ever given, mm-hmm. um, at least at least 300 of them. Yeah. And it's basically been the exact same the entire time. This is like a pretty real thing that actually happened. Uh, Steven Spielberg, he goes in, or Sammy goes in, and it's pretty much exactly what happens. John Ford is like, so you want to make pictures, kid? Or, sorry, <clears throat> so you want to make pictures, kid? Because it's, you know, it's David, David Lynch. David Lynch. And Sammy's like, well, yes, sir. And he's like, all right, well, what do you see? look right there? You see that painting? He's like, yeah, what do you see in that painting? Uh, uh, cowboys, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the desert. He's like, no, no, where's the horizon? He's like, the what? Where's the fucking horizon? And he's like, uh, uh, at the bottom. All right, good. Now over there. He's like, where's the horizon? He's like, at the top. And he's like, there. If the horizon is at the bottom of the image, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. If it's at the top, it's interesting. If it's in the middle, it's fucking boring. Yeah. You get that, then you might might be able to make a good picture and get the fuck out of my office get the fuck out of my office and sammy's like i love your movies sir and he's like thank you kid fuck mm-hmm. off and then like sammy leaves he's so elated he's like i just got to meet john fucking ford i just got this advice and 
<sighs> okay, best shot of the movie, right? He's walking down the back lot, and he's like so happy. He's like, I'm now entering the world of movies. I'm now going to turn into the butterfly that it'll be Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And the camera, it bumps, it it bumps and jerks, and like like a leg of the tripod went out, and it pops down, and then puts the horizon at the bottom of the image, mm-hmm. makes for a better picture. And that was improvised day of that scene. The original ending was going to be Spielberg saying cut. Yeah. And I'm like, that doesn't work. But that shot, that shot works. And that's the Steven Spielberg internalizing some advice he got. Seven, 60 years oh, previously. Absolutely. And, you know, more more David Lynchian fun because you love David Lynch. Love him. Uh, it apparently took him three weeks to commit to the film. It was a thing where Spielberg was like, you know, please do it, do it, do it. And it was actually uh, Tony Kirshner. Oh, K- yeah. Kushner. Yeah. She talked to her husband who, you know, went over and talked to Laura Dern and was like, hey, Spielberg really wants him to make this cameo as um, John Ford. And Laura Dern was like, David, you got to commit. And because they're such good friends, he was like, okay, I'll do it. But I love that his stipulation, apart from letting him do this, you know, on his own time in his own way, because he's David Lynch. He got got to use his own cigars, right? (laughs) He got, uh, maybe. But one of his, you know, things that he needed for this to happen was that they had to have plenty of Cheetos at concessions. (sighs) Or not concessions, at... um, Crafties. At Crafties. Fucking David Lynch. I was like, Cheetos. David Lynch is fucking awesome. <laughs> uh, David Lynch, the master of Americana. And it is it is one of those things where I'm like, it, it is so good. It's such a well done scene. And it's like, that's part of the Spielberg legend, right? Mm-hmm. Like, again, that's probably the most quoted story of his like interview sections. But yeah. but that's that's the Fablemans, right? And we glossed over like a lot of the movie just because for brevity's sake. But they're... There are some great scenes you wanted to point out. All oh, right. yeah. I think I have to talk about my favorite scene. Um, I mean, obviously, when he meets uh, John Ford, that's, that's a favorite. It's so good. So um, good. The reaction of Logan in the hallway where he's just moved by this piece. But my favorite scene has to be when he gets his first reel back from, you know, crashing the train cars. And he's and looking. he's in the closet and he's using his hands as the screen and you just see this movie playing out in his hands because no that's where he's created you know he's hand holding the camera and it's just you know i've created this thing and i'm holding it basically i'm holding my future in my hands it's it's the thing where it's like yeah holding the future he's also like i'm i'm a craftsman i made this like my dad who makes computers i have made a movie and i'm holding it in my hands but just right? to see it you know in a child's hands and just you know how excited he is i mean it, it honestly reminded me of my nephew al Mm -hmm. Um, because it's been a thing that I've been noticing recently when we hang out with them. Um, He either likes to have his mom or dad take pictures of things that he's interested in. He loves, you know, uh, know, uh, vehicles and um, transportation. And for my birthday, when we hung out with them, he saw this, you know, vintage car Christmas ornament. Mm -hmm. And he had my cousin take, you know, multiple pictures of it from different angles. And right away, he wanted the, the phone back. And he's just flipping and he's looking at the, the car in different angles. And I was kind of like, you don't see kids do that that often. Spielberg hits you right in the sentimentality. Oh, my God. He, I was, he I was just like, it. that's where, you know, it, it had been my head. And then, you know, seeing this in the movie and it's like, you know, can my nephew be that? You know, is this, you know, a passion, a drive that might be, you know, sparked 
Or he might just want to be a mechanic. You don't know. Or he might want to be a photographer. You never know. But, you know, it just kind of, you know, takes you back to, you know, being that age and, you know, have these things that just kind of spark your attention, spark your love. You know, for me, that was movies. You know, it was just movies. It was that one day where it just kind of sparked and it was like, this is my thing. I love movies. I can never go back. This is my passion. It Again, it's the Spielberg touch, right? Yeah. And the movie, I really do like the movie, mm-hmm. honestly. I have my gripes with, like, the third, the, the second yeah. half of the movie. Because, again, the first half, you know, we have the scene where it's, you know, the kid and it's all the schmaltz. We have him building his stuff. It's very fun. We have the I mean, drama. Let alone when he's filming that scene for himself and you see the smoke billowing out of the train. They make a, a Lionel train set look massive, right? Yeah, and it's just like, oh my god, you know, you're a child and you make me feel like, what is the train going to crash into? Oh my god, you know, can we get that car off the tracks? And it, it's the thing where, I again, the first half pitch is so high and so hard, yet it's a really good. Yeah. The second half starts to de-escalate, the movie starts slowing down, it's... It's it's weird. I feel like it is a little uneven. Mm-hmm. Just me. But did you feel the same way? Yeah, it felt uneven. Um, I think it needed to end the way that it ended. Because, you know, originally, you know, I was thinking it should be on a set, you know, something. Like uh, his uh, first day filming something. Like the Columbo pilot, I think, is like one of the first things he ever shot. Yeah, you know, something like that. But it's like, I think, you know, him getting his blessing, his baptism from John Ford was kind of like, okay, that that's a good way to go. And this is, you know... It's kind of like Sammy finally caught a break when you see him walking in between the sound stages. One of those iconic scenes of, you know, the actor or the director in the back lot and they're the surrounded by their their craft. They're finally home. It That scene is a very is very interesting. And like Spielberg's a very interesting kind of figure. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, that John Ford, his baptism into cinema, you know, John Ford. I think he dies in like the late 60s, early 70s, something like that. Yeah, not too sure when he passes. Yeah, but it's one of those things where it feels like, oh, well, John Ford, this is him kind of passing the baton off Mm -hmm. to Spielberg as, you know, say what you will about Spielberg. He is a quintessential American, like, populist director. Yeah. Right? Like, there's no one that can touch him. You People can bring up whoever, like... Yeah, George Lucas made Star Wars, Spielberg made Indiana, Indiana Jones, Jaws, E.T. Like, like, the guy has, like, this huge catalog of movies that's just all work, that just all kind of just works for this huge populist audience. You know, he is the popcorn guy. And then I think, you know, as we're wrapping this up, I think we need to talk about our kind of funny attachment to this movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, for anyone who wonders, we record in Whittier, California. Uh, we do it in... Um, Under City Comics. Under City Comics. Uptown Whittier. Uptown Whittier. And they filmed uh, the... Where Benny goes and pawns off his camera at... Or sells his camera at the camera Sammy. shop. Sammy. Sorry. Sammy sells his camera and Benny's there buying the camera that he had just made his war picture with and he's giving it to him as a gift that entire sequence was shot um about a hundred yards from our front door yeah it was shot at monty's camera shop um i mean you get a glimpse of it in the movie Mm. but that's the way that monty's looks monty's looks like you're stepping through time you're back in the 60s the 70s it's one of those camera shops that probably has not 
had a remodel since 1974. I mean, I remember the first time that we actually went to Monty's and the the window displays kind of reminded me of a Christmas story where there's like full displays of things happening. Mm. And as a photographer, I mean, I absolutely love it because they have the enlargers and they show the process of creating an image. And it's like, oh, my God, you know, you never see stuff like this. But to see it in this movie was just kind of breathtaking. But we were actually there that day that they shot the scene. Yeah, we were walking through, you know, getting lunch or something we like that. We getting dinner. Or dinner, yeah. And there was like the whole crew was out there. Like they were driving through the cars. I'm pretty sure. We well, saw Benny's car. Yeah, we saw Benny's car. I have pictures of it when this episode gets uploaded. It will be uploaded onto our Instagram, the behind the scenes pictures we were able to get. <laughs> but yeah, it was kind of kind of wild. I was like, oh, yeah, the i'm watching that scene i'm like i've i know there i've been there we were there and you know it was this thing where you know we're we're watching them as they film they're in the cars and they're rolling down the street and that's i mean seth rogan was there when we were there and we had no idea yeah but it was this thing where you know you have people that are in period clothing and they were just hanging out and we went up to them and we're like hey um you know what's shooting because it's whittier so obviously it could be anything from a commercial to a movie and someone goes Oh, yeah, it's this, uh, I guess, this biopic about Steven Spielberg. And we're like, oh, okay, cool. And we're thinking maybe it's like a TV movie. Yeah, and or then, maybe it's like the the Spielberg documentary. Maybe it's a recreation of something. Yeah, and then, you know, the Fablemans comes out. And we're like, holy shit, we were there. We were standing right there. <laughs> uh, it It's a really fun, fun little, like, tie to the movie. But... Yeah, because where we record, uh, we're part of, like, the historic district of Whittier. Mm. So a lot of movies have been filmed in the neighborhoods around here. But just to be able to kind of stumble into it as it's happening and then realize, oh, no, it was this oscar award you know nominated movie and right let's, here let's get to that honestly yeah movies nominated for seven oscars win zero yeah everything everywhere all at once gets like eight nine i think uh all kind of western front gets like of, of the two of them really kind of swept huge sweeper right uh so this movie is nominated for best picture and best director and uh supporting uh it's nominated for a lot of things. I'm just curious. Do you think it should have gotten any? Seeing the seeing the movie, you're just like, ah, this is where I would really like this to be in it. Because this was a front runner for the Oscars for a long time. Yeah, I and mean. And then everything, everywhere, all at once kind of just was a steam engine that just kept on building and building and building. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, I, I wanted at least score because it was scored by John Williams. It's their last score together? Yeah, but even in John Williams, he's like, yeah, you know, this is my last score with him or, you know, all at all. But he's like, when Steven Spielberg calls you, you don't really say no. So, you know, the odds of us getting another John Williams score are very high. So I was kind of hoping that he was going to take it since this was kind of his, you know, I might be retiring after this. Hmm. But, no, I, I think, you know, everyone that won the awards this past Academy, you know, season, I think it, you know, went to the right people. I mean, it's a great movie, but... It's not even top five Spielberg? No. It's top, top ten? I'll go with top ten. But, I mean, again, I have to look at the list of the Spie- Steven Spielberg movies because there are so many Spielberg movies. I mean, I could probably, I can rattle off like five or six off the top of my head. I liked more than this. I mean, the box office also didn't reflect very well in the movie. Mm-hmm. It was it was a $40 million budget. It was a 45 box office. So yeah. it was a soft flop. Yeah. It made back its money. Didn't make enough to be a, a hit hit. Yeah. And it's and it's a thing where 
the movie should get a little bit more love, but it it is a very weird thing for Spielberg to make. Because I think he originally wanted to make this in like 99. Yeah. And then he just decided, I think he decided against it, honestly, because he felt it was... um. He did not want his parents to see what he thought of them mm-hmm. and their, like, marriage and his place in it at that time. Yeah. And then him making it now, it's like, okay, he's a little bit more free to kind of express his own feelings. But it's like, this is such a personal story to him mm-hmm. that he is trying to make it a little bit easier to access. He's calling it the Fablemans, not the Spielberg. So it, it works out. But it's, I don't know. I I felt, I really felt like this was a really good movie. It was not a great movie. And, you know, the words spiel and fable are both synonyms for story. So, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it's this... I like how you just go off on that tangent real oh, quick. Oh, I had to. It was in my notes. I was waiting to drop that. I was like, when, when, I can, when can I drop it in there? Well, but, you know, it's, it, you know, this movie was, again, you know, thought of in the late 90s. Uh, he wrote it in 2020. And I think, you know, it was kind of like the rest of the world where, you know, 2020 was that time where we kind of, you know took time to reflect and to, you know, think things out and try new things. And I think it was kind of one of those times where I was just like, I've had this idea. Now I have the time. Let me see, you know, how far I'm willing to soul search and, you know, create this. So I think it came at the right time. Uh, you know, I, I loved kind of, you know, getting a, a glimpse behind the camera into seeing who, you know, the man is when it was really the boy. Yeah. And just seeing, you know, his journey to now and, you know, the possibilities of the future, you know, for Steven Spielberg and his films. And tying it into the theme of the month, right? Yes. Uh, um, Is this a movie about movies? I think it's a movie about loving cinema, even if even if it hurts you kind of thing, right? Because he loves making movies. It feels like he is kind of destined to make movies you know he's steven spielberg yes of course he's gonna make a movie and i mean you know we have his mom early in the film saying you know movies are dreams and they're fantasies and they are but at the same time you know he sees that movies are the truth and even if they're fictional characters you know it's a fantastical world movies teach us things and it's and it's a very lovely movie. It is. It's just goddamn when Jesus Girl shows up, it is a different <laughs> film. The tone shifts <sighs> completely. It's something else. It's yeah. something else. Again, the the whole third section of the movie, it left turn, guys. You took a left turn. I wasn't there for it. I got thrown. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. But overall, I really enjoyed the movie. Um I give it two strong thumbs up. Uh, I, I hope they screen it again. I, I'd like to see it on a bigger screen and kind of really experience it. Get that cinematic experience. Yeah. Yeah. I I give it a I give it a strong like thumb up mm-hmm. on it. That, that second thumb's kind of shaky. I I think on Letterbox I gave this like a three and a half out of five. You know. Yeah. It, it's a it's a slightly above average. Like there's stuff here I like it. I'd it's, probably go with the same rating too. It's probably it's one of those movies that would probably like really really grow on you mm-hmm. after a while or if you're like 18, 19 and you love making movies and you really like mm-hmm. want to kind of like bite into well how do other guys experience like making movies and things like that? This is probably like right there for you, right up your alley. It it's you know, it's an inspirational movie. I mean, I've got my camera with me today. I haven't touched this camera in a couple of years. 
had a roll of film, popped it in, and then I'm going to see what I can shoot today. I, I, I love it. The Spielberg, you have worked your magic again with the power of cinema. <laughs> Why has God cursed me with the Kino powers? So much Kino, so much. Again, I'm, I was waiting for the moment where Sammy was going to be in the rain and be like, <sighs> Why have you cursed me with the power of cinema? But Tetsuo. yeah, but yeah, so that's the Fablemans, everybody. Um, really liked it. But what are we watching next week? Next week, we're watching a movie that is brand new to Dean, but is very near and dear to my heart. I think it's the only movie that I've seen five, six times in the theater. We're oh. watching The Artist. Oh, The Artist. This is a movie that swept its Oscar it run? It did. It completely swept. And it's also our first silent film on the podcast. Oh, man. there I have so many silent movies I want you to watch. I'm so mad it's going to be one made well, in like 2010. Well, we're going to start with mine first. But if you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. You can go to our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That is The Film Vault on YouTube. Eventually, when Dean remembers to, he will upload slideshow versions of this podcast Yay. so you can listen to it on YouTube. Like, comment, subscribe, and you can also follow us on our social media at The Film Club Podcast on Instagram, where we post daily stories, upcoming episodes, and our random adventures we go on. And with that, lights, camera. <laughs>